This podcast is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Now available, the Fuller Leadership Scholarship for students who begin the Certificate of Christian Studies in spring of 2019 or summer of 2019. This new scholarship will cover up to 100% of certificate's tuition cost for select students and is designated for ministry and marketplace leaders looking for new ways to impact their congregation, community, and calling. Take courses in the areas like missional churches and leadership, Christian ethics, dynamics of power and gender in Christian leadership. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash leadership scholarship. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. This week's podcast conversation is brought to you by the Baptist Commons of Wake Forest University School of Divinity. Several School of Divinity alumni have thrived within Baptist life, serving in significant positions of leadership in local churches and in larger denominational organizations. The school's newly launched Baptist Commons program draws on this success, fostering opportunities for mentoring and internships so students can network with alumni and other Baptist leaders. The Baptist Commons honors the school's Baptist heritage and its role in fostering excellence among diverse communities of Baptists. To find out more, visit divinity.wfu.edu. Our guest for this week's conversation is a writer, a speaker, and activist. Kathy Kong has written for Sojourners Magazine, Faith and Leadership, and released a new book in July entitled Raise Your Voice. Kathy, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you, Andy. Now, uh, I know you live in a suburb of Chicago, but uh, backtrack a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your story. Sure. Uh, So I was born in Seoul, South Korea, and came to the U.S. in 1971 with my parents. Uh, We immigrated um, and landed in Chicago with only the intent to visit relatives on our way to Philadelphia, is what I am told. We never made it out of the Chicago area and uh, grew up on the north side of Chicago until I think it was second grade, moved out to the western burbs, and I have been in the Midwest ever since. So how did you get into the ministry of writing? So writing was always a part of my life. Uh, My dad actually uh, encouraged me and my younger sister to keep a diary, to keep a journal. And uh, in part, I think it was more than anything to practice our penmanship. So I actually have beautiful penmanship. And he gave us initially just spiral notebooks to log what we were doing or thinking or experiencing on a daily basis. And uh, that just became a practice, a habit over time. And I recall having some sort of diary, some sort of journal, probably from at least second grade on. And that just became the way I processed things and was able to express myself. And it wasn't until I would say my high school experience where 
I actually didn't think much about writing, but it was an English teacher who suggested I think about writing for the school newspaper and getting involved in the editing and writing process. And it was that teacher, Mrs. Karen Umwalf, who really took me under her wing and encouraged me to think about how writing might be a part of my career path and something that I might want to pursue. So uh, the diaries and journaling kind of continued. I pursued a journalism degree for my undergraduate degree and then went on for five years after graduating uh, to be a journalist. I spent two years freezing in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and then another three years also freezing in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Well, it definitely should be noted that right now Kathy's in Chicago on the day that they're having just absolutely awful weather. I was reading an article recently that said y'all are going to experience worse weather than Antarctica in the next couple of days. Yes. Yeah, that seems to be. It's Antarctica, Alaska, Siberia. (laughs) I mean, pretty much anywhere you would think it ought to be colder is warmer. Yeah. Well, I think tomorrow it's supposed to be like in the fifties in Louisiana. So, uh, so there's that. I'll send you warm thoughts. So, yes, uh, please do. Now, in in July, you released this this new book, uh, "Raise Your Voice: Why We Stay Silent and How to Speak Up." You invite readers to discover the voice of God that's given them to speak out against injustices happening in our communities and around the world. Um, what was going on in your life that inspired you to write it? Well, at the time, uh, I was coming off of a ministry sabbatical. So I have been working with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship for 21 years and uh, had um, just been coming out of my first full six-month sabbatical. And in part, it wasn't a single incident, but a series of incidents over time. Uh, making me think about what were uh, the injustices going on, not only in the country, but what was hitting close to home. And were those injustices things that I could address, not only through my writing, but also through relationship? Was there something I could do in terms of supporting friends, elevating and amplifying their voices and the work that they were doing? I think around the time um, my book proposal and ideas were first swirling were around uh, what was happening in Ferguson and um, realizing that a number of my friends and colleagues, my black friends and colleagues were experiencing uh, that protesting and Um, a number of the uh, shootings that had happened prior in ways that I couldn't relate as somebody who is Korean American, living in the suburbs, um, and a very different life experience, but also has um, experienced racism. And I realized that there were things that I could communicate and could also amplify in the ways in which I had power over. So in my social media presence and the conversations that I was having with friends. Um, And so that's really what was going on at the time. 
And then, you know, there's just been a lot going on here in the U.S. as well as internationally that has caused, I think, hopefully, Christians and the church to consider how it will consistently address injustice and how it will give space to people who are trying to bring about change. You speak a good bit um, about some tension that tends to happen within some people. You wrote, sometimes speaking out is dangerous and silence is a matter of self-preservation. I guess let's talk about the psychology of, of those two. What's happening when people tend to stay silent um, out of an act of self-preservation? What's happening within, within them? Well, I've talked to a lot of people who have resonated with that, and they often say it really is because, one, they, they don't want to rock the boat. They don't know how their opinions will impact a relationship or their community or even their job and their security and sense of security, maybe even within the church or a group of friends. Um, And so internally, they are trying to determine whether or not um, it's worth sharing perhaps a different opinion and furthering the conversation in a direction that they themselves may or may not be sure of. Um, And then I also know that sometimes those conversations are ones that many of us are engaged in over and over, and sometimes we have to opt out of having those conversations so that we can save some energy for the next conversation that might involve more people or more time to go deeper. Well, on the flip side, there's oftentimes people, um, there's a great danger in speaking out. So um, (laughs) this might be a silly question because you, you write an entire book on how to navigate speaking out. But I mean, uh, how do people navigate maybe the the psychology of they've spoken out before and their hand has been bit and they don't know if they can do it again? Well, I, I'd like to say that it is, um, it's an ongoing process, right? It's, it's not just a single issue or situation. The decision to speak up about something is a decision that you have to make almost every day, uh, big and small things. Um, even before we started recording, you know, I had to make the decision, am I going to make sure that you know how to pronounce my last name? And, you know, are, are we going to make sure that we are on the same page about what's going to happen in this recording? And those are, you know, feels like they're little decisions, but I think that the process is still the same, right? It's trying to decide, well, if I don't say something, what's the worst case scenario? And is that price I want to pay? And even when you do speak up, and like you said, you get your hand slapped, um, you do have to do some inner work and decide, is this, is this a truth? Is this um, a, an issue or a conversation that I actually am going to take the risk? It may not end the way I want it to. But do I think that I can have the kind of conversation and ask the right kinds of questions so that we can further understanding from the point we're at to a different point? 
Um, I think that there are too many times that I myself have opted to stay silent simply because I'm not sure if I can control the way a conversation is going to go. And so I have been encouraging people to not worry so much about controlling the narrative or controlling how a conversation is going, but making sure that um, that's, that's the issue, that's the injustice, that's the correction, that is um, bringing good news into a situation that needs to have it. And if you get your hand slapped, you're in good company because we all have that happen to us. You're a mother of three. Um, yes. What What differences do you see from your generation and your children's generation in the openness and ability to voice things that matter? Well, um, I think one thing that is uh, a little unique in our situation is that for my parents and my husband's parents who uh, were first generation here and immigrants, uh, their ability to communicate and speak up about things externally were limited because of language. So it really depended on whether or not they were addressing, say, the Korean church community or their friends versus something going on in their neighborhood or in the school district. Um, so that's what's different for me and my husband. And then looking, you know, one generation down and then looking at our children, I do think that there's something very powerful for this younger generation, my kids' generation. So my kids are um, between the ages of 17 and 23, I think. <laughs> and um, they have had other ways of communicating that have been both a blessing and a challenge. So they have grown up with things like cell phones and texting. They've grown up with uh, social media and online gaming. And so their ability to identify different communities, I think, is a very powerful thing. And then being able to communicate pretty quickly and pretty off the cuff is a very powerful tool that they have grown up with. Now, on the flip side, um, I think we all, those of us who engage and use social media, have seen the pros and cons of being able to kind of tweet out whatever we're thinking in the moment. Uh, and the implications and the consequences can be fast and furious in that space. But I also think that uh, they have had the benefit of being able to connect uh, more broadly. So their ability to get information, uh, maintain friendships through social media and through technology has been really quite powerful. Well, as you alluded, um, as a Korean American, your your cultural upbringing might be different than, say, uh, African American or Hispanic American or Caucasian American. Um, so, how how has your culture uh, shaped the way that you voice concerns in the world? Sure, I I do think that 
even growing up in the Midwest, I've had a lot of uh, white friends, white um, peers and colleagues say that there's something around growing up in the Midwest, that there's this thing called Midwest nice. It's a little passive aggressive. And in a lot of ways, uh, as a Korean American woman in particular, I feel like that is actually a really good fit. Um, the the idea is that we kind of try to keep the peace and the idea is really not to rock the boat. And I would say that that was kind of the cultural norm that I grew up with, both in school and in my neighborhood and then also at home. Uh, but then, you know, the challenge was also growing up as the child of immigrants, this push to... Um, succeed and make a way that was going to be better or easier than what my parents had experienced. So there's, there's this kind of going back and forth. You don't want to ruffle feathers. You don't want to cause trouble. And so you don't always point out the things that you see are wrong or unjust because you don't want to draw necessarily that kind of attention. But what I also learned was that if I stayed silent, then the people I loved and the issues that I cared deeply about were not going to be addressed. And so a lot of it, I think growing up in the Midwest, being really one of a handful of um, students of color in the elementary and high school that I grew up in, um, I had to learn pretty quickly making lots of mistakes, making lots of enemies, but also making friends, the cost of speaking up around injustice and the things that I cared about. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. I have from time to time over the last few years had some pretty glorious rants on social media. And I, I try to state <laughs> uh, clearly what my convictions are and the theological implications behind them. And a curious thing happens almost every time. The likes and shares go up while the unfriending and unfollowing occur. In other words, I might say something that resonates with many while losing the ear and connection with someone who doesn't agree with me. Um, yes. This is one of the limitations of, of voicing what matters on social media. Um, what have you discovered about this conundrum? And, um, you know, if so, how do, how do you navigate this, this, I guess, conundrum, if you will? Yeah, yeah, it is. It really is. Um, because particularly as a, a published author, there is a lot of push for us to have some sort of social media presence and some sort of platform out there in part so that we can promote our book and promote our work. 
and engage with readers. And so, like you said, it's great when they love what they're reading, but not so great if they totally disagree. And I think what I've learned is that um, I hear a lot on social media, you're never going to change a person's opinion through a single tweet. And I would pretty much agree with that. But I think part of it is to learn what the different media, social media channels are good for and how to build trust over time with friends and um, uh, online friends with uh, building that sense of trust and mutuality. And so what I often do is not just put out what I'm thinking and what I believe, but also sharing the work and thoughts of other people. And I may not always agree with those thoughts and opinions, but I put them out there in part in order to let people know, hey, I'm reading this stuff and I have questions about this. I don't actually know everything for sure. And so these are the things that I, I care deeply about and I'm pretty convinced about. If you want to talk with me about these things, that's great. We can probably do that better on private messages or an email, maybe on a Facebook thread, Twitter, probably not, definitely not Instagram. Um, but also learning that it's not just about sharing what I believe, but also engaging others in what they are most passionate about, even if I don't agree with them. And so I do think that there is some, and I'm still working on it because even today there are a couple threads going on where I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> what is happening? But to at least take the time and respond to something that I've posted or I've commented on and to to try and stay engaged, especially if it's something that I have started. Uh, I've learned that if I'm not willing to revisit the post, um, revisit that conversation, then I probably should not have posted it in the first place. And then, you know, you know, there's also the, the unfriending, but there's also the trolls. So it's also trying to discern who are the people who actually want to engage and who are maybe not actually people behind the accounts. And I think that makes it really tricky. Well, I think pastors find themselves in this same place. They need to speak their gospel centric convictions, but every word spoken or typed could either resonate or disconnect them from someone. Um, yes, the Spirit of God is involved in how people receive and perceive such things, but how might pastors navigate voicing things that matter from the pulpit of social media in a healthy way? I think one of the things that I would encourage pastors to learn and practice is first and foremost to practice saying, I'm sorry. I think as a Christian leader and somebody who's also been in ministry for a long time, I realize um, that's a lesson I've learned probably the hard way through parenting. When I have raised my voice, um, yelled at my kids, been 
you know, kind of in a foul mood, realizing that that speaks volumes and it's not what I want my family to hear. And so I need to apologize. I need to learn the power of my words. Like you said, whether they are written or spoken, whether it's a sermon or something you write in your church newsletter or on social media, I do think that uh, unintended consequences are real. And that sometimes maybe because we haven't had to have our words checked over and over. And that is one of the challenges of social media, right? It's one thing to, to preach a sermon and then the words kind of fade. And then the challenge then changed when you could record a sermon played over or when there are notes from the sermon, right? So every level of reiterating that conversation, I think adds to our understanding of the power of what we say. And it just would be such uh, a witness, a testimony to other Christians and even visitors to our churches when those in leadership can say, I am sorry my words hurt you. Um, and then it is a reminder to pastors and leaders, communicators that uh, our words are powerful. <laughs> And we may believe firmly in the theological grounding of our beliefs. We also still need to consider how our words are couched and do they also communicate love as well as truth. Um, and, and that's a nuance that is very difficult. I don't always find that you know, sweet spot on Twitter or even in my writing, but it definitely is something that I think we need to encourage, not just one another, but especially our leaders, our pastors. We all seem to have a voice. I mean, there are endless platforms for people to state their opinion. Everyone has an opinion about just, I mean, name a topic. And you get into some of this in the chapter when you post it, everyone and no one will care. Um, so how do we voice, how do we voice what matters clearly and independently, maybe above all other voices? Well, again, I, I tell people over and over, there's no easy formula to this. If there had been, I would have written that book. And, um, and really, I think the heart of it is that we need to be humble and be willing to make mistakes. And learn from that, that I do think that there is um, a loudness and an urgency that is created by the speed of social media. And I don't think that that is necessarily the place uh, where, as Christians, we need to go first and foremost. I think the people that we are living amongst and interacting with on a daily basis are the ones who are going to give that real life feedback to us about our words, about our opinions, about the way we voice all of those things. And if we don't have that, if we aren't willing to 
ask for the feedback, receive the feedback, and then learn from it, then we'll continue to make the same mistakes when we are online and using social media as the only platform. So I, I tell people, this isn't about how to get it right on social media. This really is about how are you going to live and communicate those values consistently, whether it's in person or online. Uh, one of the best um, meaningful compliments I received was from a reader I finally got to meet in person. And she, as we were leaving our time together, she had said, you sound in real life and behave in real life this exactly how I imagined you from your reading and from what I see on social media. And that meant a lot because I do think that there, what, what could be very easy for a lot of us is that we seem like one person online and we're a very different person in real life. Um, and, and I'm encouraging readers to consider how our voice is consistent and human. I, I tend to read the news expecting the change I want to see in the world to happen at a rapid pace. And in the same way, we want to one off a post or soundbite and expecting change right now. Um, I wonder if you might speak to our impatient urgency for change. Well, you know, I think it's human nature. <laughs> we see it all through scripture where God promises something and God's people take it into their own hands. Um, you know, the golden calf is a great example of that. Instead of waiting for Moses, people are like, no, you know what? We're tired of waiting. We're just going to melt all of our jewelry and create this thing that we can worship. Um, so I don't think that it's really new. I think that that is part of both our brokenness and our desire to see the world right. Um, but I also know that for me, the speed in which I get feedback on social media and like you had mentioned before, Andy, the, the ability to like put things out there and everyone has an opinion and a platform, I think makes us feel like things should come faster. And really, we, we all know that's just not reality. Um, but what I do think is possible is that we are able to connect with people in ways that we have never been able to connect. I mean, I would say social media has been a challenging space, but it has been such a wonderful space for me to meet and interact and build relationship with people that I don't get to interact with face-to-face -face on a regular basis um, and would never have crossed paths with. But because there was an issue we were both interested in or an article that we both happened to come upon uh, to be able to connect in that way, I think shows that 
maybe change is possible, maybe a little faster because we can connect in different ways and mobilize people in different ways. Um, we don't have to pick up the phone even. I mean, you can send a text and you can send a text to a ton of people all at once versus picking up the phone 50 different times to activate some sort of action or, you know, back in the old day, it was like a phone tree where one parent would call like these two parents and those two parents would call another two. Whereas now, you know, the school districts just send out a mass email and a mass robocall to let us know that school is canceled tomorrow because it's freezing outside. So it, I do think that there are ways in which change can happen sooner, but I do think that the bigger changes in our culture, in society are still going to take a long time. I think you, I mean, you, you hit it. Uh, I think it's an important part um, for us to remember that, um, you know, we think about some of the great movements of, of the last 100 years and it was speech after speech, letter after letter, article after article, conversation after conversation, meeting after meeting that brought about this, this radical change uh, to our culture, to our politics, to the church. Um, but to keep up the good fight and to seek out um, strength and courage and longevity um, from God in order to, to see the change that we believe God is calling us to. Right. Right. I wonder um, besides the frozen tundra that is Illinois right now, um, what, what are the things are you giving voice to in your community? Yeah. Instead of just the tundra, uh, I'm so deeply concerned and care deeply about um, racial justice. So, you know, it hasn't been that long since uh, we marked uh, Martin Luther King day and, you know, the number of posts around different quotes from Reverend Dr. King. And yet I think the reality and the experiences for people are very different. And um, I'm kind of in this swampy space in Twitter around um, something that I had posted. And it's just so clear to me that the experience of so many um, uh, white Caucasian Americans is still so very different uh, than those of us who would identify as people of color. And, um, and so that's definitely one of the areas in which I'm still, that will be a drum I beat until the day I die. <laughs> Um, and trying to find ways to keep that conversation going in the church locally, as well as even at the school. I'm realizing my youngest is a high school junior, and so we're clear out of the elementary school system, but also realizing that even some of the ways the elementary schools here are addressing Martin Luther King Day and teaching about diversity actually is a very kind of colorblind way and it doesn't actually honor some of the beautiful differences 
um, amongst people. And, and so that's one of the areas in which I'm trying to discern how to go about entering into a space that I'm no longer actively a part of. I don't have an elementary school child, but I'm still seeing these emails and posts from the school district about how they're addressing these differences. And yet you and I both watch the news and see what happens. And um, those, those lovely little childhood lessons, I don't think are translating into adulthood well. And so that's definitely one of the things that I'm still very passionate about, still trying to kind of raise the temperature on. This book will be out for eight months by the time this conversation airs. So tell us about some of the feedback you've gotten from your readers. Uh, The readers have really enjoyed uh, the book and in part because I weave quite a bit of my own experiences and include my mistakes and include the areas in which I'm still learning. And I think part of it is that it happened to be published around a time where there's still a lot of active questioning, not just in society and culture at large, but particularly in the church around issues of racial justice, around sexism and uh, sexual assault, and how the church, how Christians are going to not just address what's happening, but also change what's happening. And so the feedback has been better than I could have imagined. I'm very grateful. I love it when I've been hearing um, a number of folks who are reading the book in small groups or as a church and going through the reflection questions together as something to wrestle with as a body of Christ. So what's next for you? That's a great question. So, um, so I had mentioned at the start, I have spent 21 years working with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and have just made public um, that my last day with InterVarsity will be in the middle of February. And after that, I'm not really sure <laughs> what is next. Uh, I've been praying about and planning and looking for kind of an exit ramp knowing that something is changing. I don't know what that is. And so um, I'm leaving InterVarsity in February. And what's next is definitely um, at least two, three months of not worrying about what's next. So I'm going to keep writing, try to resurrect the blog that went dead because I was writing a book and um, discerning next steps trying to figure out what is God inviting to inviting me to next. And in the meantime, uh, trying to stay warm and maybe thaw out of this freezing tundra. Hmm. Well, for those that want to stay connected with Kathy, you can follow her on Facebook and Twitter, visit her website, kathyklong.com. Of course, purchase raise your voice wherever books are sold. Kathy, thank you for inspiring us to act on the fact that our voice matters. Thank you. Well, that's it. That's our episode. 
Be sure to check out our annual sponsors' websites, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.